Hey everybody, welcome to the Growing With Fishes podcast. I'm Steve, and this week we have special guest Chris Trump. He was here a little bit earlier, he had to step out for a second, he will hey be back here in a few minutes. Sorry about the loop and audio there. Uh, Every week. I know, man, I gotta, I gotta fix that. Anyways, um, this week I'm, I'm having issues with my headphones, so unfortunately. <laughs> So, um, anyways, uh, we thought we'd get started a little bit early since Chris had to step out for a minute. He will be back. And um, we, uh, both Marty and Fish Ganja Guy haven't been here in a little while, so we thought maybe we'd just uh, touch base with them. So, how are you guys doing? What's Bye. Doing? Um, we, uh, both Marty and Fish Ganja Guy. Somebody's looping. That's Marty. <laughs> um, uh, what's new with you, Marty? Uh, what's new with me? Uh, well, all kinds of crazy shit, I guess, more in my personal life. My uncle was in the hospital last week. Oh, shit. Had emergency surgery. They flew him in. So that was that was stressful, but he's he's doing good in recovery now. So all, all that's been good. But I, I was, like, in and out of work, back and forth to the hospital. I don't even think I went in the grow room at all for, like, three days. So... <clears throat> It was, uh, everything survived all right. Some, uh, some branches got a little too heavy and sort of super cropped themselves, just fell over. And, uh, so I've been, I did this one without any net or anything like that. And I've been having a debate with one of my friends that, that, you know, they wouldn't have enough support and he insisted that they would and all this other stuff. And so he kind of talked me into it and I did just, you know, I decided, okay, I won't do anything. This time I'll just go El Natural, but sure enough, like <laughs> just not not standing up. Maybe if I had a bigger dual root zone or something like that, but um, you know a number of them are are just you know falling over. So I just use fishing line and tied them up, and not a big deal. But that was about the only real damage. One of the plants fell over pretty good, I guess, uh, from some of the weight. That was the only big issue with it. But you know what are you gonna do? So aside from that, um, that grill goo will finish up probably next week sometime. I think I'll have to check the calendar and see when they started, but um, they'll finish up then. Uh, my outdoor systems are all taken off, so that's that's been cool, getting those cleaned out and loaded up. I threw a couple tomatoes in the front door, front porch system. Um, and uh, what else is out there? The raspberry that's out there is re-sprouted and growing again. Uh, there's a bunch of mint and different greens and stuff that's all growing out there. And then in the backyard system where I used to grow cannabis before I got shut down, I have uh, the elderberry bush from last year survived and it's already going nuts. Uh, we were just talking about that before we started a little bit. It's it's really taken off and um, it, it's doing great. I think it's going to get huge this year. So I'm pretty excited for that. So that's in, in a dual root zone elderberry, which I just put in last year. And uh, even the first year gave fruit, so that was pretty cool. Uh, the grape transplant from last year, um, didn't get any grapes on it last year, but it survived. Uh, it's also in dual root zone in the back. Um, what else is back there? Oh, another raspberry that I, I transplanted from the front porch. Um, I just uh, cut a shoot out of the root system and put it in a dual root zone pot and moved it to the back. And uh, it survived. and. Um, survived the winter and it, it sprouted again so that's good and uh yeah so that's sort of what's that all all three of my systems 
are operational right now. So, well, I guess I have two in the flower room. So I have one, one, two, three, four systems that are all running right now. And uh, so, yeah, just keeping up maintenance on those, keeping all the fish fed. Uh, warranty going, all that good stuff. I found a bunch of grapes that we forgot in the car. <laughs> so that was that was good to feed the worms. They were excited for that. And, uh, you know, that, that's pretty much how I get most of my stuff is all fruit scraps and things like that. So keeping the worms fed. I'm making a new worm bin. I always start another one pretty much every year. Use yard clippings and stuff like that to start a new new worm bin and uh, get that going. I haven't worked on the raised beds too much, but I'll probably throw something out in the backyard. And uh, I have a blackberry patch that I've sort of maintained. Um, hopefully get some blackberries out of that this year, so that'd be cool. Um, yeah, fun stuff like that. Well, you know you can't kill them blackberries, so, you know. That's right. I just have, I killed them all except for one area. So I'm trying to keep them like almost yeah. like a blackberry trellis. And I'm growing them in a big spiral like this. So we'll see how that goes. But. That'll be cool. Yeah, that'll be cool. If you can keep them under bed, if you, if you attend to them, you could just have them going up and down and all around in one spot. And just, you know, oh, you yeah. have traipsing through that stuff. And up here, I bet that'd be a lot better than having to deal with them down on the ground where you keep getting pricked no matter what. You know, of course, you're going to get pricked if you mess with blackberries. Anyway. Yeah, I had a, pot, a couple of them just pop up in the middle of my raised beds. And so <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> we'll give it a shot. We keep them out at the main yard, um, obviously, but a couple of them just happen to pop up. We get them on the other side of the fence and they grow, you know, the uh, there's basically a swamp right on the other side of the fence. So they grow all over that and, yep. you know, they're going to they're gonna keep spreading out. I'm sure that's where they, they spread from before. But, uh, you know, they grow nice blackberries, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. But uh, since they popped up in the middle of the raised beds and I can't grow anything else back there except food anyway, and I like blackberries, so. Oh, oh, okay. Okay, I was going to ask you why did you want them in your raised beds, but there's nothing else there, so that's cool. Yeah. Well, and it's just, uh, you know, basically about a, you know, maybe a four-foot circle that I just train them in a big spiral like this. So it doesn't take up a ton of room. Last year, we grew a bunch of other stuff back there, like sunflowers, and we grew um, like pumpkins all around them. Although the blackberry did try to eat a couple of the pumpkin plants, uh, just sort of growing over the top of them, and they got all twisted up in each other and stuff. And the pumpkin didn't like that at all. That that one didn't didn't do so well. So it will take over some of the plants, but it, it wasn't too bad as long as I kept up on <coughs> keeping it up in a circle and trying to figure out a place to put it. So yeah, it's so invasive. It'll grow all over if you let it go. That's for sure. Yeah, or yeah, if you just not do anything to it, it'll take over. So we'll mm -hmm. we'll see how it goes. It might get to be too much work, and I just <laughs> chainsaw the motherfucker. But <laughs> we'll see. I think what it's great for is like putting up. Like we live in a swamp, and we don't really have fence around the back part of the property. So I've been taking all the blackberry when I chop them up and throwing them on the perimeter of the of the property and they grow up into a freaking place you don't want to walk through oh yeah you know yeah. so we don't get it, it'll keep trespassers off your property you, you still keep putting them on the edge of your property and then you know and try to maintain them there i find that to be a good one too a lot of small you know cannabis growers use use them as some of the best fencing ever in terms of security so yep i see chris just joined us too hey chris hey guys 
We're talking about blackberries. I love blackberries. Delicious. Oh, yeah. Hey, everybody. This is Chris Trump. I let Steve take over with his introduction yeah. now. So this is uh, Chris Trump. He's pretty much the uh, current uh, world's leading expert in Korean natural farming. He's the pretty much the first person that I'm aware of to do it on a commercial scale, at least in the Western world. And uh, he's got a lot of documentation more than anyone else. And uh, he's really a, an amazing source of knowledge. I had the pleasure of meeting him at the Science of Regenerative Organic Cannabis Conference. And I was uh, extremely happy to be able to get him on the show. And I very much am grateful for his time and uh, to, uh, to bless us with uh, his knowledge on the show. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's a Welcome pleasure, man. Thanks. Yeah, not not probably the the leading expert. Uh, the uh, creator of natural farming is uh, alive and well uh, in Korea, but uh, I'll take the uh, the U.S. Uh, authority or at least one of them. All right. So why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself and a little bit about uh, what it is that Korean natural farming is right now. It's a big, it's all the rage. And um, we've had incredible luck both Marty and I with combining it. Now we're applying it to commercial scale uh, aquaponics systems and having incredible luck with hybridizing it along with aquaponics. And a lot of people don't even know what it is. And I, I'm super happy to have you on and just educate people on it. Totally. Yeah, I was, uh, I was impressed in, uh, having conversations with you up there in, in Humboldt, California, and uh, just the, um, the thought um, kind of uh, lines of thinking that you're approaching this with. I was like, yeah, these guys are, these guys are going to figure some things out. Um, and it's um, really what um, I was excited about is uh, seeing that you're, you're taking these, these concepts, these cues from nature, and you're you're saying, well, what else does nature do, or how else does it do things? And and uh, that's really um, in in the smallest explanation. That's what natural farming is: is what does nature already do? You know, what's it what's it doing? Um, how does it grow plants well? And how can we, even if we don't totally understand it, how can we just um, transfer that to our our commercial growing zone or um, but with that, there's a, a pretty um, very scientific and pretty elaborate uh, method to kind of captivate what nature's already doing or, or um, use it in a commercial setting. So you're, I know, I understand you run a 800 acre farm and you actually use these practices. Do you want to tell people about that and, and about your results and, and your, you know, your findings on that? Because I was really yeah to hear about that yeah we um we farm macadamia nuts on the big island of hawaii and um one of the kind of reasons we farm is to provide a living wage in our community and um our communities uh a community dealing with gentrification and and other things that's kind of difficult and um so we couldn't change that. Our bottom line wasn't good on our farm uh, and uh, we couldn't change what we paid people and uh, the kind of benefits we gave. So we started looking like, okay, how do we do this better, become more profitable while not compromising 
things that uh, we care about. And um, we found out about Korean natural farming, um, gave it a very, uh, oh, we got the fire alarm going. It's not a fire. Um, we gave it a very uh, intentional um, and pretty skeptical. In the beginning, we were pretty skeptical. Um, not because we didn't believe there was something to it. Um, we were just skeptical that it could work for an 800-acre farm. Um, because when I learned about Korean natural farming, um, the practitioners were using, were it was a wheelbarrow size. Um, there were some machines that people were trying to use, um, but um, that actually wasn't going to work for trees um, because they didn't produce fungi. So we took it and adapted it for a large-scale application and we're probably seven eight years into using it on our farm and uh, all our disease trees are incurable according to our industry it's a phytophthora root-borne fungal disease um, in our industry that's called macadamia quick decline and macadamia slow decline basically trees that are going to die no matter what you do um, all of them recovered within two years and were back in full production by year three. So nice. um, we had um, incredible health uh, develop on our trees uh, across the uh, entirety of the year. Yeah, we're pretty stoked. Um, and so we do it on everything now. Um, we're uh, certified organic of Hawaii State's organic acreage. Um, and, um, we're, we're working on our products and, um, just kind of, um, developing it further. I get to speak, uh, in China in October, the International Macadamia Nut Society president was out at our farm and he's like, yeah, this is healthier than anything I'm seeing in the world, basically, and you're doing it cheaper. And, uh, so they... They invited me to speak uh, about what we accomplished. And um, really what it comes down to is we're just emulating how the forest grows trees. Um, we're just taking in what happens in nature as, in, as far as soil health and um, fostering it to happen in a commercial orchard. That's amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. So do you think that the the issues that you saw get resolved, I guess not the issues that you saw, but the um, the root issues that you guys were having before and then introducing the, uh, you know, different probiotic organisms and stuff and um, you think fostering root health and dominating that with um, healthier microbiology is what led to those trees coming back or do you, have you done any research or anything into what brought them back? I mean, obviously it's great. I'm just curious your thoughts on, on what the difference was in that. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm totally down with like biomimicry and all that stuff. I'm just curious your thoughts on, on what the mechanics of that effect is. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, Phytophthora is a worldwide problem. Um, it's a, it's basically a very small um, hyphal diameter fungi that creates a relationship at the root tip and is parasitic. So instead of 
kind of symbiotic at the root tip um, or the various technical ways to say that, the various ways that relationships are formed in the roots. Um, Pectophora goes up into the cambium layer and um, basically steals from the tree. So it's a bad deal. Um, it pays poor rent. Um, and um, by bringing in natural farming, what we're doing is we're creating a, a highly fungal and um, diverse inoculum for our soil floor, our orchard floor. And uh, by establishing these large hyphal diameter fungi that are all indigenous to the area from up in the local forests, um, we provide the tree with options. And the tree is smart enough to choose, to put it very simply, the um, fungi that pays the better rent. So um, it, it changes who it's making relationships at the root tips or, and um, that larger hyphal diameter um, fungi um, kind of takes over that same territory, that landscape in the soil. And so the phytophthora just gets beat out for territory. Um, is, and this is some of it's proven and some of it's um, just what I've kind of gone through. Um, I sat with the head plant um, pathologist for the federal government in Hawaii, um, really nice lady, and uh, about addressing it with another problem we're having in Hawaii, Ohia. It's a rapid death with trees. And um, she's basically like, yeah, that makes sense, but we can't actually test that. We don't have the tools to um, use that because um, we would have to know everything, single organism that's in an IMO culture so that we know that we're not fostering any other diseases. And um, so their hands are tied to be able to use this technology um, to solve problems they're encountering um, just because, you know, we're kind of behind in, in the world of academic understanding of what how complex nature actually is. But yeah, for, for us, I believe that basically the diversity of micro, microbes beat out the, um, basically that, that disease is opportunistic where there's a lack of other things um, kind of fostering balance in the soil. This um, kind of disease causing fungi will rise up and take over the territory and the root zone. That makes sense. So it's it's uh, it's being you know outcompeted, I guess, right? Like it's definitely all the space. It's it's moving into all of the apartments, uh, and and paying a, a much better price. So there's no there's no reason. So I like that analogy about the the exchange. There's no reason for the plant to develop a relationship with it because it, it has better opportunities. So. Yeah. Yeah, the, these larger hyphal diameter fungi will go, you know, 10 feet away and chew on a rock and provide the minor minerals at the root tip. And uh, so the plant will continue to push excess carbohydrates into that zone where that fungi is making that exchange. And um, yeah, and then it, it takes care of that fungi rather than um, continuing to foster relationships with the um, Phytophthora virus.
That's great. You answered my question before I asked it, which was what was the difference between what was done with the disease plants and how, you know, and what you did. And yeah, by, like you said, providing a carpet of, of culture there on the floor. No, it's yeah. interesting. Is I, I've, really? used, I've used lactobacillus ferments to treat um, pythium in uh, NFT uh, nutrient film technology uh, troughs for lettuce and aquaponic lettuce. And that worked amazingly well. Same thing with strawberries. Again, because of the outcompeting, you know, you have the beneficial microbe. I recently read a, a white paper on uh, using lactobacillus ferments specifically for uh, probiotics treating for meat processing and how they had lower incidences of pathogens when they treated it with actual live lactobacillus for, for instead of treating it with bleach or some kind right. of bacterial treating it with a probiotic and actually had a infinitely lower uh, it, they had zero single they did could not not a single positive test or right. as regular cleaners they did not have that they had a couple of positives so yeah that right there tells you that we should be switching over to probiotics something they can keep up with these microbes rather than trying to nuke them and falling behind in the arms race yeah this goes here, back here. to a couple of doctors a couple of hundred years ago and that uh that divide pasture. Um, yeah, I uh, I saw. I would love actually that um, study that you read, man, because uh, we we have problems um, we run into with washing nuts, and um, there's things that can bloom in the wash. Um, and um, I pitched that we add LAB, and we for the industry we would have to show some peer reviewed studies that we could do that. Anyways, so it's a, later it's a, on. It's a study from 2006. Uh, I posted it to the, the Aquaponic Facebook group as well as the UEI Facebook group, but I'm happy to, to dig it up for you. Thank you. Um, so why don't you um, give people a quick overview of what uh, Korean natural farming is and then maybe some of the different things that you guys make. I know that the general kind of overview is that m the majority of them are fermented or some kind of process and at some point involving fermentation. I know I, I, I learned a heck of a lot watching your uh, oriental herbal nutrient process, which was totally new process to me compared to all the other stuff that I had heard. So uh, every time I, I check you out and what you're doing, I'm always learning. So I appreciate you. But uh, yeah, I want you to give people a quick overview of that, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, so the, the real strength or, or one of the things that I think probably the most important in, in natural farming and um, I apologize in advance. There's some acronyms that it's it's like joining the military and everybody speaking a different language or something. Um, it's it's rough to get started, but there's a bunch of acronyms in Korean natural farming, and it's just so you're not saying these long words like microorganism over and over and over again. Um, but um, as I go through, just an explanation. No, there is a YouTube. You just search my name, Chris Trump on YouTube and you can you can dig deeper into some of this and then there's a bunch of information available online. I made the videos so that as you found all that information online and you're like okay I need a simple short thing to just figure out how to do it. Um, I made Is the there a place that. that you have the entire list that translates all these? Um, there's several places. Um, I'll do that um, on right. natural, naturalfarming.co um, that'll be really better done in the next couple months. Um, I'm okay. kind of redoing that to make it one place. Naturalfarming.co is going to be your Yeah, that's, that's not uh, super 
thriving website quite yet. But um, there's cgnfhawaii.com. Um, there's naturalfarminghawaii.net. That's my friend Drake's video, uh, um, website. But yeah, I'll, I'll be putting a bunch online too. But um, there's a great Facebook group that's really active. You can ask a bunch of questions there. It's just Korean Natural Farming um, Facebook group. I'm an admin there, so yeah. make sure you get in. Yeah, we've had some people, friends that have some problems there. You know, sometimes. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of. I'm kind of over Facebook in general, but yeah, yeah no. So back to the explanation. Um, the the real core, and it's hard for a lot of people, um, though it's actually the strongest bit in the whole thing, is IMO one and two. Um, what that is, IMO stands for Indigenous Microorganism. Um, Indigenous is central to most of the philosophy in natural farming. Um, and it's philosophy mixed with really scientific thought. Um, so just because uh, talk philosophy and we talk Eastern uh, thought doesn't mean it's uh, off science. It's just um, the way things are communicated. But indigenous is this idea that the microbes, instead of grown in a lab, um, though effective. So if you buy a lab grown like bugs in a jug, you can get all these jars of microbial supplements um, and they're rad. They help you grow plants um, and they, in soil, they'll have about a six month fall off, generally speaking. This is a very broad approximation. So I'm not saying everything will exactly, but generally speaking, they get beat out by things that are already in the soil or that thrive in that environment within six months. And so you get the benefit of them. They condition your soil and they'll make relationships with your plants, but they kind of fade away. You don't have that same concentration as you had when you applied it. Whereas indigenous micro um, microbes, if you get them from your local area, they love your barometric pressure, your rainfall, your temperature. And so they'll establish and self-perpetuate year after year. Um, and you can tend to that with food. Um, and now you have a ever-growing microbial community instead of a um, ever-declining community that you have to constantly re-up. And so, um, yeah, not criticizing bugs in the jug, I think is a very effective tool for growers, um, but also just recognizing that we experience great benefit from using it and um, a need to reapply. Uh, whereas indigenous microbes, for me, especially with an orchard, if I can get them established and they're self-perpetuating, I have a, a three month time investment and then this kind of um, train that picks up speed. And uh, I've seen this um, all over the world in, in travels, um, people using this, and, um, and I've definitely seen it on our farm. Uh, we, we went from a few worms per cubic foot to um, a few hundred um, per cubic foot in a period of four years. Um, and it just now, like, you can just scratch the soil and there's tons of baby worms and everything. Um, gets decomposed and, and my whole orchard floor on 800 acres blooms white like 800 acres is a lot of territory and we didn't pay a lot for that um, we we um, 
just to put into perspective, to make everything, to buy everything, and to apply it, we spend about $27 per acre per year. That's impressive. It's nuts. So that's below or approximately um, similar to Fun. commercial applications. Yeah. That's so crazy. That's, that's why we had, I, I wanted to bring up, because both you and Josh are here, Cowboy. The cowboy that was at the thing. Do you guys want to touch a little bit about that? Because that guy was about as far as you get from a cannabis grower, and he was there to learn from you. And I I would love to hear you guys touch on, on him just to, to, to give people's perspective on how the stuff that you're working on so much with the, that, even and then the cannabis stuff even applies to people that are as, about as far removed from people that normally would think of the way that we do. Yeah, so he's... Um a farmer that uh, he's a rancher, ranches cattle, and um, his boss is saying we're we're not you know we're not making the money we need to on the acreage we have with the cattle we have, and um, so as a he's you know as a um, just choice for bottom line, he said we're cutting all fertilizer. They would constantly fertilize their um, kind of grow out or uh, finish areas um, in their pasture land. And uh, they cut all fertilizer. And he switched over to starting to, uh, he learned some from Elaine Ingham and switched over to starting tending to the soil life. And he's getting uh, increase in yields per cattle per acre um, and increase in bottom line while um, cutting all kinds of costs and he has less effort and work. He doesn't have to make hay anymore. Um, it was a lot of fun. And then I got to just share with him tidbits that are crazy cheap, almost free, that he can do to, um, um, on a large scale, tend to uh, grassland fertility. He was a cool guy. He was, he was um, yeah, just, just a salt of the earth kind of uh, rancher. Out, out here in Idaho, actually, where I am right now. And uh, he was just happy to be there talking about soil life. And uh, it was fun. Yeah, that was, that was awesome. So why don't you tell, you have a lot of amazing tutorials on your, I know you don't like to go through all the different steps and stuff like that, but um, I did have some, uh, you have a lot of amazing tutorials on different um, uh, solutions on, on your web, on your YouTube and, and other places. Do you want to tell people about the different tutorials you have on there and maybe just a quick synopsis on the different um, sure. uh, types of, of nutrients that you use? Yeah. So, um, yeah, IMO, which I said that that simple um, indigenous microbe um, organism has four, four or five stages. Um, so first stage, you're collecting, you're putting out a collection into the forest. You're just, um, you're just grabbing some of your indigenous microbes. Second stage, you're putting it in cryo-freeze to use a science fiction you know, word, um, but you're basically causing it to go dormant so that it stays in that same kind of um, state as when you collected it. And then third phase, you cause it to grow out. So um, if you start with 100, um, I used an analogy of cattle since we're talking about cattlemen. Um, IMO3, which is a tutorial online, um, is when if you say you take a handful 
um, maybe 20 cattle over 100 acres and you just put them on, but you give them infinite grass and perfect environments and you get 200,000 cattle in a, in 100 acres just in. So that's kind of what you're doing. With IMO3, you're taking a little bit of microbes, you're giving them perfect environment, moisture, food source, and then nutrients, which there's a whole list of nutrients that you make with natural farming. Um, they grow out. So now you have this highly dense, kind of like a compost concentrate of indigenous microbes um, that's very inexpensive. And then you mix that with soil, your local soil, which brings in some of your nematodes and microarthropods and um, flagellates and et cetera, et cetera. And um, so now you have a fourth stage of this IMO grow out. And what that does is it gets everything kind of accustomed to your soil and the microbes that are there. So when you apply this to even fresh and living plants that are even, you know, seedlings, there's no shock to your, your soil or your environment because you're using um, everything's already friends, and um, which is really nice. You don't have to... Um, have that scenario, but really it, it makes it so there's no downsides. You can apply it, um, no downsides. So you can apply it um, at any stage in plant life with uh, benefit only. And then IMO5 is this highly dense microbial community that you created with IMO4. You can use it to quickly um, cure high nitrogen material um, and really effectively. So you could bring in a manure um, or, um, I think in my video on IMO5, I use a black soldier fly um, larva kind of left behind material, super high nitrogen, and you can process it. And now it's cured and ready to be applied again without shocking the root system or anything of your plant. So that's five stages of this indigenous microorganism. And the whole point is you're going from a small amount that you collect in the forest you get a inoculum on your shelf that's shelf stable. You can always pull from it and then you grow it out. So you have a high, high density of microbes to seed your acreage. Um, that's also very cheap. There's fermented plant juice that's on the video. The idea is to use um, a inexpensive or free material that's thriving um, in your local environment. Um, fermented plant juice, there's a lot lot of variety of information online, especially in the cannabis community for fermented plant juice. But you really, um, I'm going to go into that real quick. The, the world um, of agriculture is studying this like crazy. Plant growth hormones, um, different biochemicals that are in specific plants, and they're extracting it, this highly, very expensive process of extracting these specific biochemicals from all these incredible plants and putting them together into a liquid and selling it to you. And it really works. It's, it's effective to use these beneficial biochemicals. That is how nature causes plants to have these different kind of strengths. And... Um, but that's a very expensive process. It's cutting edge technology. And with FPJ, we can take with our eyes, we can observe plants that thrive in our environment. They're always green. They're the first to come up. They have all kinds of energy. They never get whacked with bugs. Um, and it's your weeds. A lot of them are your weeds. Um, 
and you can ferment it and benefit from all this biochemical technology that they're spending all kinds of money and trying to look at, you know, and isolate everything. And you can just say, you know what, I'm just going to apply all of it to the plants and you benefit from um, real science, but it's just how nature does things. And you're just, um... anyway, so fermented plant juice, that's a long um, and deep rabbit hole of tech and talk. Um, you know there's... what? You know what's amazing is that uh, Kentucky State University actually did a lactobacillus ferment where they actually um, pre-soaked their fish food in it for, was it two or five minutes, and then fed it to the fish. They got a 15% in uh, increase in growth in fish and a reduction in fish waste. And then Marty actually was, uh, as far as I'm aware, one of the first people to recognize lactobacillus ferments uh, for uh, use in media beds for um, solid waste removal. And uh, and then when we applied it, uh, I took that, applied it to some raft beds that had, you know, like standard uh, lettuce beds and, and discovered it's one of the best things for eliminating fish waste that ends up past the fish filters in aquaponics, that super fine silt. The labs love to just liquefy it within a couple of days. It's gone. Water clarity. It's amazing. Insane. Yeah. It's crystal clear water. It's 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 amazing, and it and not only that, we have worms, we have shrimp, we have seed shrimp, we have daphnia, we have all kinds of microorganisms. It doesn't bother anything. It's it's basically you're taking the the tech of a a riverbed, you know, or the, the you know in a in a long-standing natural environment. There's all this diversity of life just existing in the soil. And you're just saying, hey, we're gonna we're gonna capture that and apply it to uh, something commercial, and it just it makes so much sense. That's why it's a lot of fun. And so for people that aren't super like scientific minded or don't you know know a lot about biology, you don't have to. And you start looking at this stuff, and it's pretty intuitive. You just kind of be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like this is happening here, and I'm just transferring it over here, and I get the benefit. My trees come alive or my my plants thrive and yeah it's fun. So, so some of the other cool stuff so i don't know have you ever taken your labs and seeded it with say a kefir or a yogurt culture for instance i haven't i know a lot of people have i've seen the yeah. results so the result is that so a lot of those um that you get from both kefir and um yogurt have uh, vitamin b complexes uh, that end up as a byproduct as well and they actually will increase speed of plant growth. So um, it can be a great way, you know, grab some yogurt or whatever your chosen choice of lactobacillus is. There's many different uh, interesting ones, um, uh, you know, yogurt and kefir and all kinds of things you can get at the grocery store and, and, and experiment, you know, there's all kinds of things, you know, there's all different kinds of ways to do it. We've had some incredible luck with working with a lot of seaweeds and some other stuff and um, and getting increases in growth speed. And, and I'm sure you've had a lot of different experimentation as well. Uh, maybe you want to share some of that. Maybe you don't. I don't know if there's anything uh, you want to turn people away from. I know anything with yucca or sapin in obviously uh, can be uh, adverse uh, effects on your microbial life. But, you know, I want to discourage store-bought fruit, that whole um, mis misnomer. That's just something that people are doing. They, they want the benefit of what the perceived benefit of like this fruit is super rich in these things. And uh, that's true. And if you want, you could jump into Cho's son. 
um, makes what's called Jadam liquid fertilizer, JLF. So Jadam is um, part of natural farming. Um, the, the broader, let's call it a broader umbrella that is natural farming and the Korean natural farming we'll call Chohan Yu. So it's this uh, 80 year old dude that lives in Korea, one of my teachers. And um, his son is um, Choyun Sun, and he created Jadam. Jadam is a son looking at what dad did and saying, it needs to be simpler. It's got to be easier for the farmer and cheaper. And so he made kind of a um, edited version of natural farming. So it's, it's cheaper and easier, generally speaking, not necessarily cheaper. I take that back, actually. I would increase costs on our orchard if I used Jadam um, and, and I would lose benefit. But it's not necessarily better, but there's some great parts of it and there's some definitely easier things. So I have a video, Jadam, uh, JMS, Jadam uh, Microbial Solution, um, that's really simple. So it's a little bit better than lactic acid bacteria lab or labs and um, as far as diversity and then um, but not quite as cool as IMO as far as diversity so it's kind of an in-between um, but they have Jadam liquid fertilizer where you can just throw anything into water and you never take the solids out you just strain out the liquids and add more liquid so you have this constantly building kind of um, diversity of stuff but also just you're getting you're going because it's anaerobic and anaerobic ferment you're getting more of the contents of the plant and less of the um, uh, kind of yeasts and bacteria and fungi that exist on a healthy plant whereas fpj the reason you want a wild collected early in the morning while the dew's still on it is you collect all with it you collect all this microbial life that helps that plant thrive and you benefit from that whereas if you buy it at the store it's been bleach washed it's going to ferment kind of funky and get all kinds of mold stuff going on top because it's fermenting only with whatever microbes were on your hands or the store clerk's hands or wherever, whatever it touched from being washed till when you stuck it in your fermentation jar. So for you, follow the instructions on the video. They're important. They're there for a reason. Um, what's another good one to talk about, man? Um, so I actually wanted to touch on the FPJ real quick. So when I was in Jamaica, they were taking 55-gallon drums and taking um, sweet sop, sour sop, and mango skins m mostly, uh, throwing them in along with cow milk or goat milk uh, and some water and fermenting that for 30 to 45 days, which I thought was very interesting. But not only that, to hear how indigenous uh, grow methods from the Caribbean were very similar, at least maybe not identical, but similar in theory and process to what you were talking about later on I, once i learned what you were doing it was like very interesting to see a completely opposite end of the world but similar thought process it's all over the world it's every culture so so we had all these things that the grandfather would pass down to the son and then the son would pass down to his son and they would be successful farmers with fertile land and uh and using what they had available and then we got smart and we learned about chemistry and we just, you know, said, hey, we can do it better and cheaper. 
But then we got smarter and learned that our soil was all dying, and now we need to go back and learn from Grandpa. Um, but in the U.S., we're about three generations away. From, Grandpa's dead. Um, yeah, exactly. We're, we're about three generations away from that knowledge. So we do. We need to go outside and, and look at where some of this has been preserved. And, uh, and you know, science is the study of nature. It's, it's, yes, it happens in colleges, but it also happens over 200 years of repetition and accidental experimentation and using what works. And so you have all these traditional practices that farmers who aren't stupid people, they, they like their yields, they, they like what works. Farmers choosing what worked and leaving out what didn't. And so you have this, um, anyway, so there's a lot of that around the world. There's in uh, Greenland. But we all get the math, right? Like when it comes to yield, like they all, yeah. they all know, like the math part is universal. Like 20% yeah. more, yay. <laughs> you know what I mean? We'll like, keep doing that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Everything died. Okay, we won't do that anymore. Um, in Greenland, they take um, manure from the, at, at the last harvest, and there's manure in the field. From the, take the manure, they'll scoop it up, they'll stuff it in a horn, a hollowed out horn, and then they'll cap it with some wax or some mud, and then they'll bury it four feet underground. Um, and then the next year, after the thaw, they'll dig that up, they'll, they'll put it in solution, and they'll sprinkle their cropland with it. Now, what have they just done? They've taken every all the microbes that developed over the um the growing year you know the spring and summer and fall and they preserved them below the frost layer so they didn't freeze um, below the freeze layer and then used them to jump start the microbial life in their cropland and um you know before the next year um right as the next year was beginning and that's just another example of an indigenous practice they didn't know that there were germs or microorganisms, somebody just discovered that this worked, and so it was done. And, and we can look at it and say, that's solid science. But they didn't have a microscope. The original recharge. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, leaf litter, I mean, it, it, you know, like, I think it makes sense if you look at it logically, like what falls on the ground and the, the leaf litter that's there is what's feeding the plant. Like, I think that, you know, what forms the soil Somebody hundreds of years ago would follow that same logic to some extent you know what i mean yeah and and fungi in that leaf litter that you know where roots plant roots can't digest sand silt and clay fungi can break down all this um inorganic matter and extract minor minerals and you know make it uh, available for your plants and so all kinds of cool stuff happens. So what natural farming is, is a look at that and then a, um, a compilation or an elegant um, put, putting together of these um, things that have happened over hundreds of years in Japan and Korea and, um, and then some downloads from uh, the creator himself as Master Cho would uh, would describe some dreams that he woke up, wrote down, and then saw that they really worked. And um, but it's as I have dug into it using a microscope and and uh, bouncing off with uh, different um, experts, <laughs> PhDs, and in, in 
soil science and uh, microbial life over the years, I've just found that it's um, a whole lot of really solid science. But it's just an elegant method. So it's something a farmer can take. have to know everything about everything, but they can take this clear instruction and um, apply it and, and get the benefit of what nature's up to. That's cool. So you, you talked about your, your master a couple of times now in, in your transition from what you did before and wanting to cut costs. How did you, how'd you find out about that? You know, being in Hawaii, you know, like on an island, I know you talked about some of the challenges you guys face there. Like I know you guys import a ton of food and different mm -hmm. things like that is like all of those kind of like culminate into one thing or, or what, how'd you find out about all this? I guess is kind of. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, was about, I was about to ask the same question. Uh, I got turned on to KNF because we, we were kind of pigeonholed because of the fish factor and I couldn't use anything that would kill the fish and nothing in KNF as far as we've discovered sort of ludicrous overdosing will kill your fish. So um, how, how did you come upon this? Uh, it's something I'm extremely interested to hear about. Yeah, for us, it, it was um, a bit of provision of circumstance probably is uh, best way to describe it. And though I call Master Cho uh, uh, Master Cho, it's more of a title that is kind of a Eastern thought thing, kind of like, uh, you know, professor or so-and-so, uh, it would be kind of our equivalent. Um, I don't cool. necessarily see him as my master so much. So mm -hmm. uh, just a funny clarification. But um Okay. No, definitely somebody I learned from, but that's, uh, yeah, that's just a, a different way that they approach um, educators there. Um, okay. We had a epic crop failure um, combined with a over two year, 400% fertilizer cost increase. Um, so we were farming a split operation 400 acres organic, 400 conventional. Um, and it was just the way our farm was set up and uh, we were doing both. We'd have washouts and clean outs. And, uh, but it was really, really expensive to farm um, organically in Hawaii um, using organic inputs, kind of the traditional, um, just like conventional, but with organic OMRI approved inputs. Gotcha. It was killing. It was killing us. We weren't getting enough of a cost or a price increase, um, so we ended up letting our certification lapse. We we're still organically, um, but we just it just we didn't want to do the clean outs of our um, silos and stuff because that was just adding costs that we weren't recouping. And um, so this is where we were when we. Um, and then the conventional fertilizer had jumped because of um, petroleum prices and um, the Chinese conventional... buying it all up. Say that again. The Chinese buying it all up, trying to corner <laughs> the market on all the fertilizer. Yeah, this is about for us is about twelve years ago, and uh, the That's with the jump. In... It... Sorry. That's when I got into business too. Yeah, I could you know and I. You remember what, what I'm talking about? Somewhat, yeah. That's yeah. why I jumped in. Sorry, I, I sorry to interrupt, but go on. I, yeah, no, I no, yeah. It's we farmers experienced it all over, um, and we're just like, okay, how do we do it in this new environment? 
Um, and about the time we're asking that question, um, we had a 80% crop failure due to a pest. Just a perfect storm of scenario. Um, you know, big field got mowed, threw all the pests up into the air. They all landed into the thing and went nuts. And so we, uh, nuts, there's lots of nuts jokes. Is a nut, nuts, a few nut, nut jokes as a nut farmer. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, so uh, we lost some people. We lost half the show. I'm still here, I think. Oh, Chris is hey. back. Oh, that's just back. The internet split. Oh, Bye. yeah, sorry. I'm back. No, that was Yo, like Josh. the Google yeah. issue. That ha that's happened maybe three times before out of 88 episodes. Go ahead. You were saying? Okay. Um, yeah, so crop failure. Um, we leveraged um, my dad's how equipment um, <laughs> at that time. So we borrow against the, uh, the future crop for operating expenses for the current crop year. Um, so yeah, so we were, my dad was losing his house. Um, we sold all the equipment, you know, fleet of 20 tractors and trucks and laid off, um, 30 employees. And it was, uh, it was the end. Um, and then we got a little bit of crop insurance, um, towards the end, my dad was able to keep his house. We bought back a few pieces of equipment and hired back a skeleton crew. And um, we basically farmed the easiest areas to farm, which at that time, the most productive was our conventional uh, acreage. And um, during that time, we let the organic go fallow. Um, we couldn't harvest it. Um, we couldn't, you know, we just didn't have even the um, manpower to mow it. So the grass grew six feet tall and uh, we observed something as a family of farmers, the trees that were kind of yellowing from malnutrition because we weren't able to fertilize as much in organic as we were in conventional, um, all started becoming green and lush and productive, more nuts on the trees. And, uh, and we said, there's something there that the extension agents and the experts in the field couldn't tell us. There's something there that's happening that we don't understand and um, the experts that we would ask don't understand. And, um, you know, there's little kind of anecdotal things. Oh, yeah, well, you're not taking the crop off. So the trees are, you know, doing better because you're not taking the crop off. And I heard that, but the health was beyond that. There was something else. And so we started... I committed to know nothing. I grew up uh, son of a farmer and hanging out with all the people that walked through and made recommendations and prescriptions based on uh, soil analysis. And um, we decided to know nothing. And about that time, um, this guy, this pediatrician who had practiced medicine his whole life and observed everybody continually getting sicker, though medicine got better, said something's got to give. And he met Master Cho. He was a Korean-American um, guy named Hoon Park in Hilo. And so he started translating for him, um, and he came out and visited. And he visited through a grant. He visited my town, this tiny town, 40 minutes from the nearest stoplight um, in Kohala. And um, 
Yeah, so I, I was, was privileged to be kind of the, the landing zone of Korean natural farming um, in the U.S. Um, it, it was happening in Korea for the last 50 years, um, but it, there was nobody um, translating into English, really. Um, it was being translated into English, like a couple books, but not actually communicated. Um, people could um, kind of wrap their life teacher. So, yeah, and that became, began for us a, a journey to um, see if it could work on a large scale. And um, I became, began a very intense and um, loving journey to scale it up and uh, didn't have anybody to, to look to. Um, the largest farm running Korean natural farming um, before that was this 23-acre uh, persimmon farm. And I got to visit. So I went to Korea several times, maybe eight times over the last eight years, and um, visited this persimmon farm. And I was like, okay, this is big enough. Like, what's he doing? And he applied Korean natural farming principles for three years. And that was 14 years ago. And so for the last 11 years while I'm visiting, all they do is prune and um, mulch their prunings and harvest and sometimes deal with a little bit of pests. And um, they hadn't fertilized in 11 years. And his, his orchard looked wow. like, it, his orchard looked like if Mr. Miyagi from Karate Kid had one, one persimmon tree and he gave it all his love and his effort <laughs> and all the fertilizer it ever wanted. And it was just lush and beautiful and perfect giant persimmons. But he had 23 acres of this that, where every tree looked like that. And um, I was jealous. And I said, okay, so that it actually doesn't matter how much I spend if this is expensive. If I can do it for three years and then do nothing for 11 years, it'll work out. And... Um, so we're experiencing um, perpetual health in our orchard. And so, yeah, that was, that was some of our journey. I did a lot of mistakes in scaling and um, I came to a place where I created a liquid IMO recipe. That's a little deviation from um, how they do it in Korea. And I have that online. So that, if you could get to a point where you're creating that liquid IMO that I demonstrate in that video, a really good, creating a really good IMO three and then making liquid IMO. Um, it's, you can farm anything with that and you can farm it cheaply. So, yeah. That's amazing to hear that you can reduce the cost that much and, and still produce that well. It's fun. Yeah. We use, um, the percent, the amount of nitrogen that's recommended for macadamia nuts is, um, we use about 5% of the recommended amount of nitrogen per year, um, if that. Um, and we're, ge we're getting yields that are increasing um, steadily each year and, um, and uh, as much or more than um, the people in our um, state and in our industry. So it falls in line with the study. I think uh, Charlie posted not too long ago. Steve, do you remember the one I'm talking about where it was uh, the aquaponics uh, was was better utilizing nutrients, so it was getting better growth with the same amount of nutrients 
for the same amount of growth with way less nutrients in some situations. So better better utilization of what's there, um, you know, is is something. Yeah. The biomass production per total PPM level with aquaponics, again, in a similar manner to what you guys do, because we're doing relying so much more heavily on microbial life uh, being the, the main factors in, in nutrient delivery and not so much just raw throwing nutrients at it, like a, a you know traditional hydroponic system that we can, again, use a quarter or less of the traditional nutrient levels for not all, but most nutrients, micronutrients, not as much, but Definitely for macro. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I built a commercial. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. You go ahead, Chris. I built a commercial aquaponic system right about the time I was getting into natural farming in Hawaii. We did, um, it wasn't huge. It was an experiment to see if we should diversify our crop. We we're going to do a huge series of systems if we thought it was a good business plan. Um, so we had like four 40 foot by four foot um, grow um, beds. Um, so we're doing about 100 pounds of lettuce a week out of that baby romaine. And um, I played with a bunch of natural farming stuff with it. It was a lot of fun. I, I liked natural uh, aquaponics. But when we looked at it, the cost for us um or what we could do if we made this huge one we just realized like with this natural farming if we just did macadamia nuts 20 percent better because we were already so big we couldn't beat that with uh with lettuce so we just stuck with mac nuts but it was fun but i i would be careful introducing a huge diversity of fungus um that's something i I didn't get to play with it long enough to really come to a solid conclusion, but I would theorize that you're better sticking with those bacterial ferments like fermented plant juices and LAB than um, jumping too deep into real IMO production and getting it into your aquaponics. I think something kind of was a little funky with that amount of microbial diversity in a water system. It was like it was um, foreign. So you have to do IMOs, but you have to do aquatic IMOs. Right. Well, see, I was thinking about that with my outdoor aquaponic system in a way I applied that straight to my grow beds and could see mycelium growing over the top right away. So it was pretty interesting. But it didn't really seem to have any negative effects in my system. So just on the on that exact topic, so in Colorado, we had a whole bunch of clients that were doing rainbow trout and brook trout and other things. Uh, at, at above 7,000 feet. Uh, a whole bunch of different clients, a lot of preppers and stuff when I worked at the aquaponics source. And what I always told them is go to your local trout stream near nearby your house, any, any brook, and scoop up some of the sediment and put it into your filter. And even if it's just in the bottom or put it in the bottom of your media bed uh, or in your grow bed, that, that's totally fine. Um, and, and what it'll do is it'll introduce those super cold tolerant nitrifying bacteria that it'll happily live in that cold weather environment and that's something that it's taken me a while and that it, i noticed it first with koi stuff uh, on the east coast if i got one up to the poconos of pennsylvania and i got some sediment from there and introduced it to some of the koi ponds the koi would do much better because whatever it was broke down nutrient uh, nitrogen and, and made it nitrate even when it got super cold and didn't keep it in that nitrite form that was a lot more fish toxic and that was just a 
happenstance thing when I used to do very expensive koi ponds. And this was just happened to be because of where I had clients and I just took some sediment and I just thought about it mentally and went, hey, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to try it and see if it changes my chemistry. And it worked. Again, it's just about seeding the microbes. Just the same thing that you're doing with the IMO. It, it's an IMO. It's just a cold water nitrification it's and you know what's interesting with the with the microbes especially let's use nitrogen for example so traditionally you're told that you have the nitrospira converts ammonia to ammonium uh, to ni uh, nitrite and then a, a nitrosoma converts nitrite to nitrate um, they've actually found microbes that can do straight ammonia to nitrate and completely skip the nitrate process altogether or if it does it's doing it internally um, they found other microbes, uh, they've had found three separate microbes that can do that alone. Uh, they, they have not fully fleshed that out, nor have they mapped out all the different ones for different temperature ranges. So uh, we know so little about, a, like, we, we don't know that much about a, a terrestrial microbial, uh, uh, you know, creatures. We know even less about aquatic uh, creatures as far as how they break down nutrients or, or how they benefit any kind of soil food web or aquatic food web. That's that's a really good point. Is we understand so little, and and what what you're doing is intuitive. What you talked about grabbing, like you just did something, and that's kind of wisdom. Like you didn't have knowledge about it, but you applied kind of wisdom. Where you're like, this is, I'm just, I'm not gonna, I don't understand it, but I'm gonna not mess with it. I'm just gonna do what nature's doing in this, and. Um, I think that's key. If you're going to mess with natural farming, I think it's key to kind of be like, okay, I'm not going to try and say I understand all of this because all of academia doesn't understand at all of this. I think 0.03% of what goes on in the microbiological world is is a high number for us, and and it's ever increasing. We're learning more, but um, and most of the, most of that's about human pathogens, but um, the uh, the thing with, with natural farming is the um, kind of commitment to say, we're not going to mess with it too much. We're going to apply what we do know and, um, and yet kind of be humble with what we don't know. And uh, it, it works kind of just saying, hey, I'm not going to mess with nature too much. I just want to use it, how it already works really well. And it's uh, pretty effective. I'm sold. I mean, we've been having brain grow and a bunch of other people. We've been right along this topic of conversation for months and I'm sold and I live in a swamp. I can't wait to get started. I got, like you said, I got all the, I got the weeds. I got the weeds you can't kill, you know. <laughs> I know, you said, you know, we've been talking about this, how you can tell you find your fungi, you know, from, from the roots of these plants that don't die, right? And you're and you're indigenous, the indigenous plant. You want to explain to people a little bit real quick, just on that exact note, since you brought up weeds, how uh, when you have the right soil microbes, that weeds go away because the, the, the microbes change? Because I know you and Elaine Ingram uh, are part of the two people that I met that have very good ideas on that and then can explain it in a way that most people can digest. Yeah. Yeah, I actually, um, we're, we actually got a grant from um, the R&D of the County of Hawaii to um, duplicate something I did exactly on this topic. Um, a friend of ours is, um, 
he was in my dad's wedding. He's kind of like a, in Hawaii, we call him Hanai, um, kind of like adopted uncle. He's not really family, but he's um, family in Hawaii. And so um, he was having this problem where his pasture doesn't produce grass anymore. And his hobby is growing two cattle on two acres. He gets them as wean-offs, he grows them out, and he takes them to market, and he makes, you know, a thousand bucks or something each. He, he enjoys it. He enjoys feeding them. He enjoys talking to them. But it was really frustrating because his, um, his cattle didn't have grassland anymore. And uh, so he calls us up because he gets this quote to disc it, which is like 18-inch disc. He's going to just tear up this pasture and um, turn it under three times and then reseed it. And um, part of the problem is he had this plant called fireweed, um, and it's the bane of the cattlemen of Hawaii. Um, and I think it's actually a problem in Texas and stuff too. But it's this yellow um, flower that when cows eat it, they die. Um, the, it produces a toxin for them in their gut, and they just they lay down, they stop eating. And uh, sorry, this is going to be a slightly longer story to explain, but it'll be... I think helpful. Um, and so one of his cows ate it. Um, after he asked us about this quote, it was this pretty expensive quote to, uh, to get this done. And I was like, that's not gonna change your problem. Your problem is microbial, um, you know? And, and it was because I saw all that us on our commercial land, we were still a split operation at that time. We started natural farming on our organic before we even stopped being commercial. And uh, on our commercial land, there was an herbicide strip during harvest where they uh, herbicide this 10-foot strip right under where all the nuts dropped so that they didn't have to mow all the time. And uh, everything would die. And the first thing to pop back up was um, fireweed, this yellow flower plant. And um, what I had learned through studying um, microbial life in the soil is that... Um, Glyphosate causes a deoxygenation of the soil. Oxygen can't be uptake, uh, taken up um, in the areas where it's been applied. And so um, all your oxygen-loving microbial life dies. It's like this suffocation. And so, so there's no life, basically, in these soil strips um, where it's been sprayed. But the first thing to come back, the fastest thing to re recover is bacteria. Um, fungi takes longer. It needs to be physically a seed of it. A spore has to physically land in that area and get going or be there already. Um, it just takes longer to get established, whereas bacteria can get going right away. So this fireweed, I hypothesized, was bacterial loving. Um, that's why it was can come up faster than the grass in these areas, because it could thrive in this new microbial climate. And so to disc all of his pasture land was going to um, just cause these bacterial loving plants to continue to mash all any of fungal um, connections that there were. He wasn't really going to get any um, solution. It wasn't going to make his land more fertile. And I talked to my dad. We were crazy in the company with him and and. Our equipment's occupied. I'm trying to ramp up our natural farming on our land. And 
at the same time, I'm like, we should help him, you know, his family and, and this bid that he's getting is way expensive and it's not going to fix his problem. So I said, I'll do it on my free time. If I can rent some of our equipment, you know, my dad's uh, pretty, he does things by the book. I don't get to use the equipment just because I'm the manager of the company. Nobody does. So I could rent it anyway. So, uh, so I, I jump in and I make um, a couple tons of IMO4 for application on his pasture land. And I lightly spade. Anyways, apply it, um, mulch it, and then watch. Uh, I did a, a seeding just with a little bit of grass. Um, but I just um, applied IMO, um, did a very light mulch on this two acres and uh, watched. And in a period of three months, all the fireweed got diseased. All these different things started happening to it. All the fireweed got uh, powdery mildew. Um, and then uh, it would get whacked by bugs. So I'd pull up, I'd look at one fireweed. I didn't pull any fireweed in there, but I pulled one or two just to look at them. Um, we're talking two acres of solid fireweed. And um, right around the um, where the stalk and the roots met, it would get covered in aphids and they just eat through these plants. So within three months, 100% of the fireweed had died. And uh, the grass had come up like gangbusters. It was super thick. Um, he had to mow because his two calves couldn't keep up with it. He ended up buying two more calves and getting them on. He raised four calves to market. Um, he didn't water. Um, he didn't irrigate. I mean, it is Hawaii, but we had some dry spells. And um, so now he's still, his two cows no longer can keep up with grassland production. It's five years later. He's never had single bit of fireweed return right on the other side of an electric fence where I didn't apply any IMO. It was still solid fireweed in the neighbor's pasture. And uh, slowly, there's been a buffer growing away from his pasture because I think microbes are moving in the soil. But I had the UH extension agent come out. He did all that. I did um, bioanalysis of the soil before and after. And um, it was the microbial life switched, and it no longer became a hospitable environment for this bacterial-loving, imbalance-loving weed. And so the grass can thrive, but the weed no longer can actually even survive in this now balanced microbial climate. And so that same principle applies for, um, for farmers. Um, your crop loves um, actual a fungally dominated soil, um, as much as 30 to one fungally dominated, too bacterial, and you'll become, so like a plant produces complete fats and proteins in its cell wall when it's really healthy. But um, when it's weak, it'll actually not be able to produce those complete fats and proteins in its cell wall. And so it becomes fast food for critters, for bugs. They can easily eat through that cell wall and process all that nice, sweet cytoplasm inside the cell. Whereas a super healthy plant is like this really tough meal. Like you got to eat through, you know, 10 pounds of... Um, uh, of celery before you can get a bite of uh, bread, you know, and um, it's um, so because of that, you know, a super healthy plant, you won't get this huge bloom of um, pests just because they, they can't um, process that plant as well. Whereas a super weak um, field of plants um, is actually going to become just a breeding zone for pests because it's such readily available food. So yeah, both pests and weeds can actually be affected by 
balancing your soil microbial life. So I'm glad you mentioned that. So what is the best? Because everyone says that cannabis is more loves more fungal dominated soil. What is the best way to boost the fungal dominance of your soil? What do I add? What do I make? What do I brew? What do I ferment to increase the fungal dominance? Because very, it's so hard to get a straight answer to what do I add to increase the fungal dominance. So I'm, I'm glad to have you on. I really hope you can give us, it does, even if it's a long answer, just an answer. <laughs> it's it's not a long answer, but it's a long journey as a student of soil and or um, microbial life. Um, it's not like this quick thing. Um, you could buy a bunch of fungal inoculums from the store, bugs in a jug. Um, that could be a quick answer for somebody, but it's expensive. Um, that's not a cheap answer. And um, and it has that fallout, your fall off, so you're buying it again. But um, the best answer um, is to become good at producing a highly fungal or fungally diverse and dense um, IMO 3 and 4. Um, you can send away um, your finished product to something like Earthfort. It's a bio lab, and they'll do analysis on it. I think it's 109 bucks to do an analysis on, you know, eight... eight um, grams no how much anyways it's like a little bit in the bottom of ziploc you send them away a sample and they'll analyze for you um how um bacterial or fungal your your sample is so if you make a highly um if you make anyways you'll get you'll get to check your work i've learned to do that with my own microscope and that's something but that's another learning curve you're going to have to learn to develop an eye and understanding um, what you're seeing, might bacterial or fungal. Um, but basically, if you can get an indigenous inoculum that's fungally dominated, well, then you can get that fungally dominated inoculum to um, go on your soil over and over, and you're constantly buffering towards fungi. Once those guys get established um, and you feed them, so humic, fulvic acid are helpful um, fungal foods, um, and then some uh, woody material or high carbon, low nitrogen um, ratio material. And people like, um, what are they, they like coconut core for some of the plantings you guys are doing, but that isn't actually woody enough. Um, so you need um, wood chips or, or something um, to top dress for that fungal food. So, what is your opinion on sawdust? Because I hear a lot of mixed results about sawdust, and you're a great person to ask on this. Yeah, I'm turning on a light. I'll be right there. Um, so, sawdust is awesome. However, sawdust is uncured sawdust is um, you'll have a shock initially. So, um, what people probably encounter is that. Um, they'll get kind of like a bad performance initially from sawdust. So if you're gonna use straight sawdust, one of the ways you can avoid that is soak it in ocean water um, to make it more processed, more easily processed by your, your fungi and et cetera. Um, you could even soak it and, and let it kind of dry out or squeeze it out um, afterwards. The sodium, but, the sodium yeah. has no effect on the fungi? No, um, 
it's um, it it gets balanced by what the by the whole carbon um, high carbon material, and uh, and you don't want um, like you don't want table salt. You don't want to make salt water out of table salt. You want to make um, um, sea water or or sea salt without any anti caking agent kind of thing. Um, so and at the rate of seawater. Or you can dilute it if you're concerned to a rate of one to thirty. So interesting thing, another natural farming just philosophy thing. Since we just come to it, so um, this is from the Bible. So in the Bible, the the water, the ocean was made, and then the land came up out of the ocean. So in natural farming philosophy, um, the ocean is the mother of the land, and then out of the land came plants and humans. And uh, so then you look at plants and plants, blood or cytoplasm is seawater diluted at a rate of one to 30. And wow. humans blood is basically um, our, um, what's that non blood cell stuff that's in our blood? Just look, skip my head. Plasma. Plasma is, is ocean water basically. And so um, in natural farming, we use ocean water as a input at a rate of one to 30 because it's basically like um, plants um, blood. So yeah, ocean, ocean water, the salt is not gonna affect it at all. And if you have high microbial communities, they'll use all that minor mineral to process that wood chips and it'll just make it more available for your fungi. That's really interesting. I did a lot of work with um, it's like probably five or six different products that are basically seawater minus the sodium for plants. And um, I've had a lot of great luck with them in aquaponics, but it's interesting to hear about them with that as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, if you can ferment seawater. Yeah. But you want to dilute seawater. I'm not recommending you use seawater straight in, in application um, just for soaking um, wood chips. So you would soak them and then would you give them a freshwater rinse to pull at least a little bit of the sodium or would you just soak them, dry them out a little bit and then use them? Um, I'd, I'd use them, but you have to understand how to make IMO if you're going to use um, sawdust um, you, or you could top dress just lightly. Yeah, um, plus you'd also have to think of whatever kind of tree you're dealing with because some are more acidic, some are more alkaline. Yeah. Yeah, with the the IMOs, if you're if you're making IMO proce properly, it'll balance your pHs. So I we had all these recommendations from our you know our experts in um, our orchards, and we'd have these you know um, uh, alkaline soils or these basic soil um, tests, and they say, oh, apply lime at you know ten tons per acre you know, and we, or whatever, two tons per acre. And we got that same prescription for 10 years straight. And we did it. And about the same time I started asking about, you know, what's happening in our organic orchard that's coming alive after leaving it to go fallow or rest. Um, I said, maybe that prescription isn't working. And um, our, our entire, all our orchards are completely pH balanced now. 
or, or stay right within that realm of balance. And we don't apply anything to balance our pH. And we used to have all kinds of pH issues when we were applying conventionally. So I think with uh, balanced microbial diversity, I remember one, one thing I was gonna say about how little we understand about microbes. One of the things we understand nothing about, like literally nothing, is the interaction between diversity of microbial life. We understand, we will isolate one microbe and we'll kind of get a feel for what it does. But we understand so very little about, take, take 300 DNA diverse, which is a small group of diversity, 300 different microbial bodies in a community in soil, and we don't actually understand how they affect each other or what they do in teaming up to process nutrients or make them available. That is so, so, so little understood in the world of microbiology. So, thing you yeah, see, it makes the, sense the, to me, I tell you, it makes thing, sense. So it's so, like, so yeah. naturally, like you said, when, when the master was telling you, it just, it just kind of flows into you, you know. I'm sorry, Steve, you wanted to ask, ask something. I think that's one of the things that I, I think I've learned. I started it off with aquaponics. And when I first started off working at the aquaponics source, no one could even tell me what what nutrient range aquaponics should be. Uh, the University of Virgin Island was the only one that even had that. And then I, I focused in on that. And then all of a sudden I got turned on to Korean natural farming and some of the microbial stuff. And then I realized I, my, my whole way of thinking about trying to hone in on these tight ranges of nutrient ranges was wrong. I needed to factor in the microbial stuff so much more than I was giving it. And and once I did that, I realized, you know, I think I could get way lower than the nutrient ranges I'm even doing now. And then suddenly, you know, you, you can fully get, you know, not all, but the bulk of your nutrient supply off of your fish. And, and now I'm, you know, generating fish and meat and cannabis or medicine or whatever else. But it was really interesting. And, and now we're discovering how to even improve aquaponics far above and beyond anything anyone ever done, especially in regards to filtration, removing a lot of the heavy mechanical stuff that, you know, a lot of people do, you know, decoupled or bead filters, a bunch of other stuff that cost a bunch of money. And we're achieving stuff that is not only less money and equipment, but significantly better results than anyone else doing any of this stuff that costs significantly more, the same way that you're running it with fertilizer. Um, and it's just really awesome to see how the whole industry has evolved and how everything's kind of moving towards that and how I think that, you know, it's kind of the future of all, all agriculture, be it organic hydroponics or aquaponics or soil or anything, because it just makes such a, a night and day difference. Even if even applying it and hybridizing it, it's, it's just, it's not even close. It's, it's almost laughably different because of how much better of a, of a job it does. Everything is becoming hybridized. That's plain and simple, you know, just like the dual root zone, you're hybridizing a soil and, and aquaponics together, which is built up aqua hydroponics. It's like it's just an ever evolving equation. You know, it's pretty awesome, though, you know, and I'll tell you what, I, anybody listens to this and have done a little research for a little bit, you have to see it. And you have to see how logical it is, especially once we started getting into the microbial and the fungal aspects of the subsoil and all that you know i mean in the root zone it was just it was uh it just makes sense it just makes so much sense and and it does uh, you we all know that if you have a healthy plant and it's treated in the right environment 
good growers that keep their place clean and do to do everything even if it's by the rules so so to speak they don't have the pests that other people have because they make a healthy plant we discuss how if the plant's healthy it'll propel the pest by its own nature right Sorry, I accidentally muted myself there. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, once you're, uh, that's the biggest thing I've noticed with, and let's let's just use the, the example they have with the University of Kentucky State. They used a simple one with lacto, very basic lactobacillus ferment, about as simple as it gets. And not only did their plant growth increase, they increased fish growth by 15%. Why? Because they ignored the fish, they ignored the plants. They honed it on the microbes because that's what makes everything work. If they're happy, everything else fixes itself automatically and will balance itself. And that's exactly what he, he preaches. And, 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 and on that note, I'd love for you to please explain the reason why unrefined sugar is better than molasses because that is one of the things that I have been as hotly debated. And you are someone that could actually give me a great logical scientific answer on that because i've had so much smoke blown up my ass and i i love it and i i'd love to have you you clarify the different types of sugars why some are better than others and maybe just a quick you know five a couple of minutes on that if you wouldn't mind yeah totally yeah that's uh for for anybody that's had to deal with that whole process i apologize that's uh i understand that can be frustrating uh, just the debate um, yeah, and um, as I go into this explanation, let me be clear that um, I am in no way against molasses. I don't think it's evil. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing. It has tons of function, great animal feed and, and uh, all kinds of stuff. But in natural farming, there is actually a reason for it not being used in FBJ or for storage of um, LAB or um, some of these other components. So, I mean, we use um, sugar for FPJ, um, not as a food or a fermenter, um, but to, because of its dryness. And uh, one of the things that I actually plan to experiment with when I gain a little free time to uh, farm and play around, and um, which just keeps seeming farther away, um, is that plain with salt. Um, I think we may be able to ferment with salt um, in FPJs in um, like sea salt. But anyways, that's way off topic. Um, the reason we ferment with um, sugar and then use sugar for storage um, isn't actually because it's a food, um, though it's helpful as a food in, in part. Um, it's because of its dryness. Um, the if you take um so sugar has this great um bonding capability with water and so if you take um for example if you take a paper towel you spill a little puddle of water on your table and you take the edge of a paper towel and you touch it to that water all of a sudden the water that was sitting there in that nice puddle um, actually moves across and gets pulled into the paper towel. It diffuses or by the process of osmosis um, moves into the paper towel and it's because paper towels are very dry. Um, uh, there's not a huge complex reason. It's just the dryness um, 
is like a, a great place for water to move towards, um, chemically speaking. And so with FPJ and for storage, the reason we mix it, the reason it gets wet right away, if you've made FPJ, the reason that water forms right away isn't because it's fermenting or there's enzymes. It is simply because the dryness of the sugar is pulling on the moisture inside the plant um, and causing through a process called osmosis, osmotic pressure or the dryness of the sugar is actually pulling on the moisture from the plant. Um, and then it ferments a bit while you, it sits in the plant material and, um, and uh, sugar and the juices of the plant. It ferments a bit over that five to seven days that we make FPJ. But that initial water that's pulled out is pulled out because of the dryness of the sugar. Now molasses, if you did that same thing, molasses doesn't have that same osmotic pressure. Molasses is kind of balanced in its dry, um, wet kind of ratio. So molasses will stop things from moving because it will deprive it of oxygen or any anything. Um, it deprives it from all kind of, it's very, it's like, it's like a liquid container. So molasses can create a liquid container. And so stuff won't happen under molasses because um, water can't get in and uh, nothing really penetrates it. But um, that's not really what we're trying to do in natural farming. I take IMO1 and I mix it with, with sugar because I want to take, so microbes, sorry, microbes to do their processes, I should have started with this, um, need moisture. Um, even a little bit or your desert microbes, they use moisture in their process. They use water. And um, so in IMO1, if I mix it with this specific weight of brown sugar, it's equal weights for a reason, I am actually combining it with enough sugar to trap all the moisture that's in that IMO1 collection or most of it um, and not overdo it. I'm not crazy drying it out. And so all the moisture in these bodies um, get trapped and the IMO doesn't get to keep making generations of um, microbial life. It doesn't keep fermenting. It just kind of goes dormant. So your fungal bodies will sporulate and they'll make spores and they'll just sit there waiting to be reintroduced to water. So it's like cryofreeze. Again, I, I like that. It's a science fiction term, but it, it helps kind of us wrap our heads around it. And um, so this is this is important when I want to have something as true to, as it was in nature on my shelf dormant three months later so that I can use it to wake up and get growing on a substrate or a media. Um, so really important for IMO2 that you don't use molasses because the osmotic pressure we want, um, not food. Um, if you're trying to make food for, um, you know, you're making EM or something or Bukashi, um, then yes, uh, molasses can be a food source and diluted in water, it can be excellent, um, but um, not for this, especially this IMO2 process. And then for the FPJ process, the same thing. Once we do that initial fermentation and we strain, we want to make sure there's enough sugar in that FPJ so it's not bubbling and going off and turning into alcohol. Um, enough sugar that it'll sit on that shelf dormant and not further um, ferment. If I took FPJ and I added half again its volume of water, it would turn into alcohol. 
That's how alcohol is made. Microbes, sugar, and specific amount of oxygen or regulated oxygen, or it turn into vinegar. Um, that amount of sugar in an FBJ causes it to stay shelf stable and uh, maintain its integrity. So yeah, we aren't using it for food. We're actually using it for its physical properties more than its food source. So then sugar-wise, um, unrefined sugar is great. If you can get it, there's a bunch of different varieties of just kind of raw cane sugar. Um, but if not, if you can just get the CNH brown sugar from Costco, it's, it's fine. It is refined sugar with some molasses added back in, but it doesn't have the um, viscous quality that molasses has. And then real quick, a nod to compost tea. People are like, why not use molasses in aerated compost tea? And um, it is actually has more to do with the physical properties of molasses again than its food source quality. Molasses is a good food source. It is a good fungal food, but you put a bunch of molasses into a container with bubbling air and it creates molasses bubbles. Um, and those will go anaerobic in the center as the microbes go ballistic. And you'll actually create all these micro anaerobic pockets that will skew your compost tea to imbalance high ciliate levels and bacterial levels if you're trying to get a balanced fungal tea. Let's, uh, I could go deeper or longer. I could awesome. nerd out on this. Oh, no, no, that was fantastic, man. That, yeah, that explained it. <laughs> now, I don't know. Can you touch real quickly on how to stabilize people's ferments? Because that's something else a lot of people do wrong and end up screwing that up. But that's something else you wouldn't be touching on. Yeah, so FPJ, like, like I have a video that teaches FPJ. Um, but FPJ, there's finer points. Um, and that's, that's where a lot of this is hard. Like we put this information out online, it, but it's really helpful to, to hang out and farm with somebody that knows what they're doing because it's all these details that you just learn over time. And that's hard to communicate in videos. Um, and it's hard to communicate even in a short class. And so it's better to experience a bunch of it, run into all the problems, and then be able to go back to a teacher with those things that come up and then go back and refine and refine. So um, if you feel like there's a lack of information, it's understandable, but it's because this is more like learning art or cooking than it is like uh, learning math necessarily. Um, but yeah, so FPJ, if you have a dry plant, you're gonna need less sugar. So if you're, if you're not using like, um, like if I go whack a, you know, banana off and I make an FPJ with it or an FFJ um, or an orange, I have tons of water and I need a lot of sugar to create the right balance in that fermentation, kind of an equal sugar to water balance where most of the water is kind of trapped in a chemical bond to sugar molecules. But um, if I have a drier plant and I use too much sugar, I won't get any speed in fermentation. Like if I have too much dry a plant and I overdo it with sugar, then it'll kind of like stall out and it won't ferment. So it's, it's that right balance of sugar to moisture in my plant. Now, if I ferment with too little sugar, like I do that five to seven days with too little sugar, and then I strain it off and I put my FPJ on the counter, it'll kind of, it'll have too much water in there 
with, with infinite food source and lots of microbial life from the yeast and bacteria that were on that plant wild in the wild. And it'll, it'll keep going. It'll keep fermenting. It'll keep producing alcohols with those sugars. It'll bubble. And so what I need to observe as I ferment is that I have the right amount of sugar to my total water. Um, and then with when I go to put it on the shelf, I want to make sure that my FPJ or FFJ is super saturated with sugar. Basically, we all end up in sugar bonds because the dry sugar is, is in there. And, uh, and then it'll just sit there dormant until I reintroduce it to, um, to water. Does that work? Yeah, what would be an example of drier plants since you brought up banana and oranges, wet plants where you would need less sugar or more sugar? Than like mug, mugwort. You have mugwort there in uh, where you guys are? Or well, uh, sage? I got it in if you packet of, I got a package of seeds with mugwort. Nice. And then it started. Um, it, so you can, uh, what's a good one that I'm using right now? Um, so dandelion. Dandelion's wet, but it's not as wet as like a papaya or, you know, um, or a, a rhubarb. Rhubarb's pretty wet. Um, okay. Like celery. It's dandelion. Yeah, yeah, it has not as much. So I'm probably going to use a less total shame than I would with a rhubarb. All right. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And if you are using a drier plant, it is really important morning where it has all its kind of life and moisture in it before it kind of respirates with the sun and loses some of its uh, juice. That's awesome. Yeah, I've often heard that you can cut it with 50% liquid molasses or, or other stuff. It's, it's great to finally get clarification on that. Now, How are we, doing one, we got any questions? One nod real quick while you look for questions. If you wanted to play with dehydrated molasses, that mm -hmm. does work. Because of the dryness. Again, we're going back to physical properties, not so much. So I have found people that have a hard time getting sugar. It's expensive. Dehydrated molasses is really cheap. And um, yeah, that can work. That's very good. That's been my go-to go for most of my ferments is the powdered molasses. I found the cheapest way to get it is you can buy it in 55 pound, 40 to 55 pound sacks at your local feed store. They actually use it for cattle feed. And it can be some of the most cost-effective way to, to supply the, a sugar source, at least with the method that I was using. I understand now that it's not maybe not necessarily the best way, but it was very cost-effective at the time. Yeah, and that's and key. Of course, Ag supplies are also great for that, too. Yep. Yeah. Does anyone have any questions about the difference? Oh, I had one last question, if you wouldn't mind. Is uh, Can you explain to people a little bit about uh, oriental herbal nutrient? Because that was something that, um, again, it, it's a multi-step process, and it's something that I'm still learning, and I'm still trying to figure out how to wrap my head around and, and, and Kind of opened a whole new rabbit hole for me. I'm super stoked to hear about. Yeah, I uh, I was stoked to hear about you being an herbalist and and having uh, herbal medicine as as uh, I, I learned some things from our conversation there in Humble. That was fun. Awesome. Um, yeah, it's um, 
So OHN, um, it's just a one thing real quick. It's best if you don't have all the ingredients, just make it with what you have. Of the of the five ingredients, if you don't have all of them, make it with two. You know, um, in India, it's so hard for them to get the herbs. They make it with ginger and garlic um, exclusively, and they have all kinds of um, the same kind of results and and usefulness. Um, with it so yeah don't don't add a bunch of things off the top of your head because you're like i really like this plan i'm gonna bring it into my ohn um do that elsewhere um or after you really get a feel for how it performs as it's taught because otherwise you'll never know if it's working or not working um so ohn is a com combination of about five um herbs really kind of comes out of traditional Chinese medicine um, and its reasoning, but through Japan. Um, and it's, um, they all are, I think they're warm in the traditional Chinese medicine lingo, but basically what they do is they promote immunal health in your plant and even in your microbial communities, um, they promote immunal health. Um, not so much knockout pathogens. They promote the um, organism's ability to deal with pathogens, um, and they are um, they aren't pleasant for some of your smaller microbes. So the way it works in the microbial world is a lot of your beneficials that we understand, um, though there's interactions that we don't understand. So I say this with. Uh, recognition that I know nothing. Um, what we understand is a lot of our beneficials um, for plants are bigger. Lactobacillus, it's a huge bacteria. Um, a lot of our fungi that are we know are beneficial are, are large. Um, and so some of this antipathogenic properties of these um, five herbs are also um, somewhat um, difficult for our smaller microbes to deal with. And um, so yeah, you do a little bit of fermentation to make these herbs um, and um, plants available. So it's ginger, garlic, licorice root, um, cinnamon, and angelica. And there's two parts of angelica root. And um, you ferment it for seven days um, and then you tincture it. So this, after the initial fermentation, which really helps it um, be available, you're not really fermenting um, any longer. You're now causing the physical properties of these herbs to suspend um, into alcohol. And so there's this three months of stirring and that stirring is for the um, kind of fusing or infusing of your these herbs. And, um, and it micronizes it, really helps it become highly available in, um, in its function and use. And uh, if you didn't stir it, say you did this process, but you just said, oh, it's too much stirring, you would never have a fusion between these herbs and um, your alcohol base. Um, they would just stay separate. You'd have a clear alcohol sitting on the top, and you'd have all your herbal um, content sitting on the bottom. And uh, so it's this very specific process to get the most out of the bio, kind of the, out of these herbs that aren't aren't super cheap but 
though OHN is kind of the big investment of natural farming, the amount you use is homeopathic. It's tiny. Um, I, on, on our farm, 800 acre farm, I use, I think 16 gallons per year. Um, so for a, um, it's hard to say that because people are like, what is 800 gallons like compared to what I'm doing? So for like, um, for like a, say a 20 by 20 garden, you might use, um, two ounces over four years or something like that, you know, or just ridiculously small amount, um, depending on what you're spraying. So yes, there's some investment to make OHN, but you can put it on the shelf and because it come, becomes more micronized over the years, um, it actually gains in potency over three years. After three years, you just call it a wash and you use it at the same rate, but um, you use it at a rate of one to a thousand for the first year, one to 1500 for the second year and one to 2000 for the third year. So it's double potency after three years. So making a little bit for five years worth of OHN and leaving it on the shelf, um, it's just a tool in your shed. That's awesome. So how would you recommend storing that? Would you recommend storing it in the fridge or at room temperature? That's another question I get a lot of. No, just with a lid on. So OHN is not alive. Um, but alcohol will evaporate if you have if you don't have a solid lid. So no, room temperature is fine. Um, I recommend just so it doesn't. Um, you don't want it constantly heating. Um, store it like you would your wine, basically. Um, you want it to kind of maintain a. So if you have a concrete floor somewhere under something tucked in the dark, I'd store it there. Awesome. And HDPE is something we use if you're going to use plastic. Never use um, PP plastic, only PE, polyethylene. Awesome. Is there anything else uh, you want to tell people? I know you do a bunch of classes and stuff. Do you want to tell people about the classes that you got coming up before we let you go? Uh, and uh, how do people, how do they find you and how do they sign up? Yeah, so building a website that, it's a huge resource with a lot of these, just my language, um, not because I'm special, but just because um, I find that a lot of the information is hard to sort through. So naturalfarming.co is um, the website that is in development, um, but you can get on a mailing list to hear updates about classes. I'm doing one class this year. I'm doing it in July in Boise, Idaho. Um, it's a five-day class. There'll be a short um, crash course in my, my microscopy, the use of a microscope. and um, But we'll go through all the basics of natural farming. You'll get certified to teach a level one class. Basically, you'll be a certified teacher of a crash course in natural farming, which people teach usually on a weekend or something. Um, but yeah, it's five days, a lot of hands-on. We're doing this stuff together. And um, that's in Boise, Idaho, July 9th through 13th. You can find it on Eventbrite. Uh, CGNFI um, is the acronyms, but it's just Natural Farming Level 2. Um, and yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Soil Stewart. And you can find me on Facebook, though mostly kids stuff on Facebook. But um, 
yeah, and then to YouTube. It's uh, it's the borrowed platform of uh, teaching things. So there's a bunch For of now. videos on there. For now, until they yeah. ban us. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so build the website quickly. We'll we'll talk about that uh, right after your section. We've actually uh, re-uploaded our website to a bunch of new websites in case uh, YouTube gets uppity. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I probably should do that too. Do do not trust anything. I um, one of the biggest uh, horrible things. There's a guy named Myers Mushrooms. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, he's one of the leading experts in edible mushrooms for the gourmet chef thing. Does not a single thing on psychedelics. Not a single thing on anything to do with anything untoward in any way, shape, or form. Has whole channel deleted. The guy had almost some ludicrous amount of subscribers and just they deleted him for no reason the guy wasn't you know no warning no strikes just up and deleted him so um i've been in the process of i got i had the whole channel backed up and um uh, uh in a minute or two we'll go over all the different news platforms but thank you so much for taking the time to join us uh you're welcome yeah. anytime uh it was a very much a huge pleasure to have you on and to educate everyone on on korean natural farming and um uh, thank you for all you do and thank you for kind of taking the torch and moving forward with this whole uh, kind of direction of, of education and, and farming. Yeah, it's a pleasure, man. It's a, an honor and I'm, I'm just grateful for the, the time in our, our lives to get to play with this stuff. So, um, yeah, and the nature we get to do it with. It's kind of the big gift, right? We all get it. We all get uh, nature as the big gift. We just need to kind of figure out what it's doing. Good yep. to see you. Thanks again for coming on. Yeah, that was great yeah, information. Talk. Awesome. Yeah. Good to talk to all you guys. I'll talk to you again. Bye, Take Chris. Care.